0: Gracious God, our Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand the world in which we live, a world for which Christ died, the world you love so much that you sent him into the world. And help us to realize our privilege, our responsibility, and the resources you've given us to meet the needs of our needy world through Jesus Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us Again, to understand your word and to respond to it in repentance, in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe it was Henry Ford, carmaker, who said history is bunk. Well, I drive a Ford, uh, but I beg to disagree and I think his statement is bunk. History allows us to place our lives in a much broader context than the here and now. As we look back to see where we came from, and hopefully with the benefit of hindsight, we look forward and see where we are going to. I I love history and history books. I recently finished reading all 600 pages of Andrew Marr's book, A History of Modern Britain. For the non-readers, you could have watched it on the television series. It's a fascinating book. It's particularly interesting to me because it's a history of modern Britain dating from 1940 to 2007. And thus it spans my own lifetime. Not the whole period I hesitate to say. (laughs) But within that period... Uh, closer to home, and covering a much longer period, is Ian Balfour's Revival in Row Street. The best ten pounds value you will ever find in any book, and they're available on the bookstool. Uh, Ian traces the history of Charlotte Chapel from its foundation through a remarkable man called Christopher Anderson, who founded this church in 1808, And this, of course, is our 200th anniversary in 2008. But, of course, the history of Charlotte Chapel needs to be placed in a much broader context than those 200 years. Ian does that. He goes back to 1643 and the beginnings of Christian Baptist witness, anyway, in Scotland in that year. And Baptist history in Scotland, of course... It goes back much further. The whole history we need to place in the history of Christian history in Scotland. So you go way back to Ninian, Whithorn, St. Columba, Iona, 4th and 5th centuries and the Christian faith almost certainly came to our shores far earlier through unknown Christians who came along with the Romans when they first invaded the shores of Britain or whatever it was called in those days. However, none of this Christian history would have happened but for a remarkable event which took place around 15 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he returned to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ promised his followers that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit to enable them to be his witnesses. This is our verse of the year, the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts one eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen in our series in the book of Acts, which appropriately we've called the spreading flame, how they started to fulfill that mandate. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus. They began to witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. And then following great persecution, and through men like Philip and Peter, uh, the Christians were thrust out of Jerusalem. And where did they go? They were scattered to Judea and Samaria, where they witnessed for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first two parts of the mandate begin to be fulfilled in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria. But today we focus on this key event of the utmost importance for us and our history. It's the start of a mission that will carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's no exaggeration, therefore, to call it, as I've done this morning, the mission which changed the world. And yet the words themselves, recorded by Luke in Acts, don't seem particularly dramatic. What I want to try and get over to you this morning, if I can, is to grasp the enormity of what happened in the story that's recorded in Acts 13. Uh, One writer, Ian Blakelock, comments, The world ministry which thus began was destined to change the history of Europe and of the world. So, let's read Luke's account of the launch of this mission and the first stage of the journey in the island of Cyprus. So, you'll find that in Acts 13, uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 12, it's page 1107. Acts 13... Verses 1 to 12. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is God's word for us to focus on today. This is the beginning of this remarkable mission that takes the gospel out. We take it for granted. The Christian faith is a missionary religion. But humanly speaking, but for this incident that occurred and the start of it, we may well not be sitting here. This may well not be an inverted commas Christian country. We may not have the heritage we had were it not for the fact that people responded to God's call. Now, mission always involves people because God uses people. It started way back in the book of Genesis when God called a man called Abraham and he obeyed God and set out. And now into this mission to the ends of the earth, it will be launched by two individuals that God calls, Barnabas and Saul. But it's essential. Here's the first step if we're going to fulfill the calling to which uh, God has called us to be a missionary church. The first step is always point one. I have three points this morning, as we often do. hope you can remember them. They're on the screen. The first point is this. that's absolutely essential. Obeying the call of God. As the church in Antioch, receives instructions from the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, it's no surprise that the launch pad for this mission was not the church in Jerusalem, but the church in Antioch. The church in Jerusalem is composed largely of Jews and Jewish converts. And as we're going to see in the book of Acts, and we've already seen, they find it very hard to break out of the traditions in which they have grown up. In contrast, we've already seen the book of Acts, you can listen to this on the internet, previous part of the series, in Acts 11, 19-26, this church in Antioch is new, very different, composed not only of Jews, but mostly of Greeks. And maturity is added to vitality, for this new church in Antioch with the arrival of two gifted leaders, Barnabas and Saul. Uh, They spend a whole year systematically teaching these new Christians about the Christian faith. Uh, The results are so evident uh, that we saw in Acts 11 verse 26 that it's here in Antioch that the disciples are first nicknamed Christians. So, this new church is a very cosmopolitan church and that's reflected in his leadership. Uh, just look again at verse 1 of Acts 13, and you'll see a little bit about the people in the church. These are just the leaders who are representative of everyone. Barnabas, we already met in Acts 4. His real name is Joseph. He comes from a Jewish priestly background. He's a wealthy man. He's a man who lives up to his nickname. Barnabas means son of encouragement. A Simeon, a Hebrew name, was nicknamed Niger," naja, which means black, Almost certainly he was a black African. Uh, Some people believe he was the same Simon who carried the cross of Jesus. Lucius is a Greek name. He came from Cyrene in today's Libya. He was also an African. Some people suggest he was Luke, the one who wrote the book. Almost certainly that's not correct. But nonetheless... Here's a man with a Greek-African background. And then there's this man, Mannion. Mannion's a Hebrew name. He's from high society. It says he, he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, probably means more than that. He was probably from an elite family, and in those days the children of wealthy families would grow up together in the court as playmates. It's kind of ironical. Here's a leading Christian who grew up with Herod the Tetrarch, the one who beheaded John the Baptist, and was involved in the trial of Jesus. And then finally, here's Saul, this brilliant intellectual, former Pharisee, Jewish zealot, persecuted the church before his Damascus Road conversion. And these five, we're told, were prophets and teachers. We don't know which were prophets, which were teachers, whether they were all prophets, all teachers. Saul certainly had both gifts. Uh, Just to summarize, a teacher is someone who systematically regularly teaches God's Word. A prophet is one who speaks God's Word into particular situations. So here's this growing, dynamic church in Antioch. It's an outward-looking church. And on learning of a severe famine that's going to hit the area of Judea, they make a collection. Special offering, we sometimes do the same kind of thing. We have a retiring offering when there's some kind of famine or disaster and and, and they collect the money together and they send it off to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Saul and they go back to Jerusalem no doubt tell them about exciting things that are happening in Antioch and then we read in Acts 12 we're almost up to our passage verse 25 when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission they returned from Jerusalem taking with them John also called Mark who's actually uh, related to Barnabas himself So, it's not surprising, when you come to chapter 13, here's this church seriously considering before the Lord what other kind of mission the Lord might want them to undertake next. We read in verse 2, they were meeting together, praying, worshipping and fasting. In his book of Messages on Acts, Kent Hughes, the American, writes, fasting is always a mark of deep spiritual concern, indicating that a person is willing to set aside the normal demands of life, like eating, in order to concentrate for a time on what God wants. And it appears that the entire church in Antioch was joining in this pursuit. And it's while they're concentrating, while they're focusing on the Lord, while they're saying to God, what do you want us to do as a church? What's the right thing for us to do now? It's while they're doing that, the Holy Spirit, we don't know how, whether it's through one of the prophets or whatever, but very clearly a message comes from the Lord saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Even then they want to make absolutely sure they've made no mistake, this is a very important step, and so they spend more time praying and fasting, and only then are Barnabas and Saul sent by the church, verse 3. So after they would fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this is not some kind of ordination to some kind of office. They were already prophets and teachers. No, Barnabas and Saul are being commended as they carry something far more precious than a monetary gift. Saul himself, in one of his later letters, will describe it as treasures carried in jars of clay. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Now, before we move on, we need to ask, because I asked myself very seriously this week, what kind of church we are in charlotte chapel are we 200 years old or are we 200 years young are we flexible and outward looking above all how serious are we about seeking god's will as a church are we eager to listen to the lord to follow his directions and his orders I'm sort of challenged to ask another question. Is fasting an extinct practice in Charlotte Chapel? When is the last time you went without food in order to seek God's will? When is the last time we as a church, I think it was several years ago now, that we set aside some time to fast as a church and seek God's will as a church? How serious are we about this? Are we like the church in Antioch Or are we more like the one in Jerusalem? Strong, well taught, but held back sometimes by... Tradition which has been good, but is maybe not helpful. I leave you to think about that, but you're part of this church in our fellowship groups this week. We'll be thinking about the book of Acts. We need to be thinking about what sort of church we are. I know it's more difficult when you're a large church to, to all gather together corporately. It's been encouraging to see more people coming together to pray on the weeks when we don't have fellowship groups. We need to do more of that. We're going to be listening to God's voice as a church. So Barnabas and Saul are sent by the church, but the next statement reminds us by kind of way of balance, that they're also sent by the Spirit. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Uh, Notice again what, what the text actually says. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This suggests that Barnabas and Saul had already been called to this work by the Lord. Indeed, we know from Saul's account of his testimony... On the day when he was converted, the Lord gave him a very definite call to go to the Gentiles. Now, here we are, twelve years later. And here's Saul, now middle-aged. Finally, he's going to embark on the mission to which God has called him. Some of us are very impatient. We hear God's call. I remember God called me to missionary work when I was part way through my university degree i wrote a letter to the missionary society of Wycliffe, and i said uh, god has called me i believe to bible translation um you know have you got a ship going out next week uh, thankfully they they encouraged me but told me to carry on studying and even then it was five years before i finally made it to kathmandu and then to india But even then, I think to myself, gosh, if I'd gone at that time, I was not at all ready. Maybe you're a young person here this morning and God's got a plan for you and you know that God's got a call laid on your life and you think, oh, if I I could only just give up everything to start tomorrow. You see, God has got to work to train, to equip you. Saul spent 12 years preparing to be the missionary that God had called him to be. Just a word of encouragement this morning to you. If God has called you, you may yet be middle-aged or even in cases older person whom God has finally brought together, all the gifts that God has given you, and He's going to put them into action. And so you've got this balance. And it's important, before we finish on this point, to notice the, the, these two things. Sent by the church, sent by the Spirit. The, the two things go together. In the Bible speaks today, commentary on Acts, John stopped us. Would it not be true to say both that the Spirit sent them out by instructing the church to do so, and that the church sent them out having been directed by the Spirit so to do. And he says there are these two poles that we need to avoid. One is the individualistic streak to which we're very prone. God has called me, I'll just go off and do my own thing. The other is the institutional thing where you can't do anything other than the ch- through the church. We need to keep the two things in balance. Uh, John Stott concludes, there is no evidence that Saul and Barnabas volunteered for missionary service. They were sent by the Spirit through the church. Still today, it is the responsibility of every local church, especially of its leaders, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in order to discover whom He may be gifting and calling. That's where we take it seriously in this church. We have a mission board. And if you're interested in mission work, we say to people, you need to speak to the mission board. This is not just some kind of bureaucracy. It's because the mission board and the elders, we take seriously... Young people who want to serve the Lord. We want to know and confirm that this is God's will for them. And so Barnabas and Saul set off on their journey. They go 16 miles down to the port of Seleucia and then it's about a 60 mile journey across to the island of Cyprus. Now, we don't know why they chose Cyprus. We don't know what the Holy Spirit said to them, Cyprus was famous in those days as it is now. It was a kind of holiday island, you know, where everybody went for a break because it was a lovely climate and, uh, and uh, location. I'm sure it wasn't that they said, Lord, send us to Cyprus, you know. Uh, Lord, send me to Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, we don't know why they went to Cyprus. Maybe it's just the nearest place. Uh, Barnabas came from there. He probably knew the island. Uh, there were links between the two places. We don't know. It's not important. Uh, So, they land on the eastern edge of the island, and they begin their mission. So, here's the second thing. After obeying the call of the Lord, notice at the heart of the mission how it's described here in the verses that follow. All right? Secondly, proclaiming the Word of God. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the Jewish synagogues, John was with them as their helper. We don't know what John was doing exactly. Was he just making the meals, washing the clothes? Some people thought he was carrying the Scriptures with them in scrolls, the Hebrew Scriptures. He was the only one who had been present at the life of Jesus and the events of his crucifixion and resurrection. Maybe he was a you know, sort of first-hand witness that they could call on to tell uh, the true story, the full facts of the story. And the inference from in verse 6 is that they continued this pattern. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see this, that as the missionaries reach out to new communities, the first place they always go to are the Jewish synagogues. And they do this from east to west, 90 miles, till they come to Paphos at the other end. They had a clear pattern of operation. Now, this was not just because they were Jews and thought they'd get a better hearing among Jews. In fact, they got a worse hearing. No, they were following a God-given pattern. By proclaiming the word of God, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Although Paul, as we've seen at his conversion, was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles, he recognized the gospel was first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. He said they were kind of grafted into God's plan, into the tree of God's plan in Romans 9. We read that. It's only when he and his companions are persecuted, driven out of the synagogues, that they concentrate completely on the Gentile mission. Even then, for the rest of his life, he writes his heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved, Romans 10, verse 1. Very sad that anti-Semitism then has been associated with the church in past history. How strange today that we're told by even some church leaders that we should refrain from offering the gospel to Jews as though we're doing them a favor. We have a gospel for Jews and Gentiles, for all peoples to all the ends of the earth. This is because it's not a human message. It's a message from the Lord. Verse 5, it says, They proclaim the word of God. It's a message announced by the one who has been sent. Barnabas and Saul are sent by the Spirit with a message from God. It's not something they've invented, something the Lord has given them. Now today, I believe the church in many places has lost this sense of, of having a divine commission and a powerful message given by God. So we refrain, we back off from sharing the gospel with people like Muslims. Have we lost faith in the power of the gospel? Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, declares, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And so at the heart of the message is proclaiming the Word of God. If you read the history of this church, one thing will stand out in the middle of all of it, right through all of it, particularly, well, right from the beginning, but particularly from the revival a hundred years ago, at the heart of this church has been a conviction that we need to stand firm in proclaiming the Word of God. Our styles will change. Our music will change. We might even get rid of the pews. No, that wasn't a prophecy. I don't know that we will. Probably won't get so many people in. Uh, We might change the front up here, which we've been talking about, or, or change the front out there. Or we might knock the building down and build something else or whatever. But Charlotte Chapel stands firmly on this great conviction that where God's Word is preached, God speaks... People here are converted and are built up in the faith. That's fundamental to everything. And we believe it's fundamental because it's fundamental to the mission of God. It's a mission we have a gospel to proclaim. So, that's the second thing, obeying the call of God, proclaiming the word of God. Now, as we go through Cyprus with them, we discover a third thing that is inevitable with mission. Thirdly and finally, facing the enemy of God. Uh, Barnabas and Saul finally arrive at the provincial capital, Paphos, at the far end of the island. In fact, it was called New Paphos because the old Paphos had been destroyed by an earthquake and they'd built a new one uh, a few miles distant. Uh, There was a Roman official in charge of the island on behalf of the Roman government. Uh, Luke very accurately described him as a proconsul. That means that he was administered through the Senate. And we discover from other history, apart from the Bible, how accurate this is. Uh, Now, this man is called Sergius Paulus. And he's characterized, interestingly, by two what what seem to be contradictory traits. We read he was an intelligent man, but he was also a superstitious man. It shouldn't surprise us the combination goes together. We we live in a world, increasingly, do we not, a kind of split-level world, where people deal in the rational areas on one level, and then spiritually there can be You know, you can be a really bright person, but read your horoscope every day. Or or even worse, we live in that kind of world where people are intelligent, yet also superstitious. And we need to get away from seeing this kind of divide where, you know, when you come to church, you leave your brain at the door. Leads to all sorts of problems. And the Romans were particularly particularly prone to this kind of thing, following superstition. So this Roman proconsul had an attendant who had occult powers. Uh, Luke's account has already introduced us to a similar man called Simon. You remember the story in Acts 8? He was a sorcerer. The word for sorcerer is magos, from which we get the magi or magi, literally, magoi, the ones who who came to visit Jesus. You remember magi from the East, magi from the East. And this man, Elymas, is also a magos. He's also a sorcerer. Uh, And sometimes they're very negative. There can be a spiritual searching, but it can lead you in the wrong direction. And so he's a kind of attendant, you know, uh, you know, the court sorcerer next to, next to Sergius Paulus. And so when Sergius Paulus hears about these people who've come with this dynamic message, and the news goes around the island, he's very keen to hear what they've got to say. And so he invites them in, and Sergius Paulus is none too keen. I guess partly he doesn't want to lose his influence, and certainly doesn't want to lose his pay packet. Now, just as God works through human beings, by spirit so the devil always works through human agency and and if you look at the story of Alimas we can see something about Satan's twofold strategy which you'll still observe today and can I just say to those of you who think this is all mumbo jumbo you know people with occult powers those of us who have lived and those of you from other parts of the world will know you don't even need if I'm preaching and living as I have been in India or Africa I don't even need to mention this Everyone knows about the power. We lived in a small village in Nigeria. People knew who the Abok was. And called him in the local language. He was the person with occult power. So, you went to when you were ill and all else failed. You might go to the dispensary and get some Western medicine. These things are a reality. Don't underestimate Satan's power and don't be misled by his strategy. Now, his strategy is twofold. Two things. One, to deceive. Very interestingly, ironically... This guy, Elimus is also called, is a false prophet called Bar-Jesus. It means son of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a very common name, but the name means, Jesus means salvation. Here's a guy who says, my name is son of salvation. Peter looks at him directly and says, no, you're not. You're not a son of salvation. You're a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. I just wonder if someone said that kind of thing today. Certainly in our society, you'd probably be had it for lack of political correctness and probably said, you know, for for, for saying kind of direct things like that to people. But there are times when you need to confront evil. And and not easily. Notice Saul does it filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives him insight to see behind the facade and see what this man is really about. Act... At the heart of everything is the eternal destiny and soul and life of this man, Sergius Paulus. And so, Satan's strategy is to deceive and then secondly, following from that, is to divert. Verse 10, he says, will you never stop perverting the way of the Lord? The goal of Satan is always to pervert, to turn people aside from the truth, perversion instead of conversion. Conversion is putting you back on the right track, on the way of the Lord, turning people to the Lord. So there is a spiritual battle. Here's a big contest. You've seen the Olympics. You know the judges aren't marking this. Here's a context. Uh, in, the, in the court of Sergius Paulus, between Elemas and Saul, between Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ. A power encounter. There can only be one winner. Notice the outcome. A twofold outcome. There is a message of judgment for the sorcerer. Saul says to him, Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Those who reject the light of the gospel end up in the darkness, blinded by the light. Notice, however, he's not made permanently blind for a time. I'm sure that when Saul says this, he remembers his own story. He was struck blind on the road to Damascus. His calling that he received on the road to Damascus, the Lord said to him, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Acts 26, verse 16 to 18. We can only speculate on the ultimate destiny of this sorcery, did he come to faith as a result after the period of temporary blindness? We don't know, but there is a clear outcome in the case of Sergius Paulus. For the message that they bring is a message of salvation. For the proconsul, verse twelve, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed about the teaching, at the teaching about the Lord. In the NIV commentary on Acts, written by Ajit Fernando, who preached in this church and. Uh, It's from Sri Lanka. Uh, He knows about these kind of things. Notice, very interesting what he writes. The proconsul believed when he saw what had happened. But that was not the cause of belief. The verse goes on to give the real cause of the belief, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Paul's teaching had been done. That was the foundation of belief. But the proconsul's heart was opened to receive this message through the miracle. And he concludes... Ministries, and this is very relevant to our present generation and things that have professed have been going on over the water and even closer to home here in Edinburgh, ministries that include the miraculous must ensure there is a faithful proclamation of the gospel so that people respond to it rather than miracles. People will always be attracted to miracles, to sensation. But it will not change their hearts and minds. What will they? Turn them in the right direction. It's the message that will turn them ultimately. And before we move on, I'm almost coming to a conclusion, but let me ask you, have you responded to the gospel? The message of Christ. Have you been turned back onto the right path? The message alone of the gospel can bring you God's salvation. Which side are you on? There are no neutrals in this battle. You have to choose. One of the great things in... The life of any church is to see people turning from darkness to light. Uh, we have a baptismal service next Sunday evening. Uh, various people have had to put off because of families. You have one young man who's going to be baptized next Sunday. If, if you know what baptism is about, you've been delaying it, and you've nailed your colors to mass, speak to myself or Rodney afterwards. We have room for other people. There are lots of people stacked up towards the end of the year you want to get baptized. So, if you're thinking about that, but it's time to stand up and be counted and say, I belong to Jesus Christ. That's why baptism is so fundamental. It doesn't save you, but it confirms and says to other people, you're declaring your allegiance to Christ. Now, as we come to a conclusion, Saul's Gentile mission here has begun in earnest. This is the... Sergius Paulus is the first totally Gentile convert with no Jewish background that's mentioned in the story. From now on in Acts, uh, Luke will change the name Saul, his Hebrew name, to Paul, his Roman name, because he's going to be going to the Gentiles. It will be a mission that changes the world. The gospel comes for the first time to Europe. From Europe, it will go from the Gentiles in Europe, people like us, to the ends of the earth. That's the story. That's why this is such an important event. That is history. It's past history. But what of the future? I began with Andrew Marr's book, A History of Modern Britain. I would encourage you to read it. It's very well written, well researched, and I think very balanced. But, you know, there was one challenge in it that really hit me right between the eyes as soon as I read it, because it's right in the introduction. He tells you what his thesis is, what he has learnt after intensively studying the history of our country since 1940 to the present day. And you'll be surprised by this, I think, but not if you think about it. Here is what he writes in the introduction to the paperback edition, which I because It's cheaper in its moment. Okay, here's what he says. The big theme of the story that follows is the defeat of politics by shopping. Consumerism has shouldered aside other ways of understanding the world, real political visions, organized religion, a a pulsing sense of national identity. Amazing, isn't it? Stop to think about it. But then he adds in the paperback edition, written a year later after the powerback, yet during 2007, the biggest change was a darkening of the national mood. It is not just global warming, but a sense that the good times are not, after all, forever. I would suggest to you that success in the Olympic Games is not going to change that mood or fill that vacuum instead surely of all times in our history here's a challenging opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ Or oh, you say what can we do what did they do a little church with two members they sent out to start this amazing mission I would suggest here is a challenge for a church like Charlotte Chapel whose avowed and ambitious mission statement is to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. How are we doing? Are we ready for the challenge? A mission that changed the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, reflect on the history of our own nation and see where we are today, a nation that is consumed by consumerism. We're just saddened that our horizons are so low. The treasure that we seek is so transient, so unfulfilling. Yet we have a message that offers life in all its fullness, hope beyond the grave, a future for a nation and a people that will respond. Lord forgive us for our apathy for the fact that we've become like the world help us indeed in this particular church and whatever church we belong to to be indeed conspicuous for Christ to be that distinctive community of people who are transformed and being transformed by the power and message of Christ and send us out send us out on mission with the good news of Jesus Christ To our city, to our nation, to our mission family, to the ends of the earth. What we pray for ourselves, we pray for every church in our city and nation that is obedient to the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.